Chapter 31 of St. Charles Borromeo, A Sketch of the Reforming Cardinal by Louise M. Stackpole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter 31 The Only Way In July 1583, Charles traveled on and by the shores of Lago Maggiore. The Rocca di Arona had been restored to him by Philip, but we do not hear that he visited it. It was to Ascona he bent his steps to lay the foundation stone of a college. A wealthy inhabitant bequeathed his fortune to the sovereign pontiff for that purpose, and Gregory put the matter absolutely in the capable hands of the reforming cardinal. Accordingly, he laid the foundation stone, the building got on quickly, and was finished within the year. While at Ascona, Charles heard that the plague had broken out in the neighboring village of Brisago. He flew there on the wings of self-forgetting charity, and remained until the scourge had passed away. He nursed and consoled the poor sick people, administered the sacraments, and gave such liberal alms that he left himself completely penniless, and he was compelled to borrow money to enable him to return to Milan. Early in September 1583, Charles Emmanuel, Duke of Savoy, fell dangerously ill. He at once sent for his spiritual father, entreating him to come without delay. Charles set out at once. Traveling day and night, he reached Novara, so exhausted that the bishop of that city implored him to rest or at any rate to travel in a carriage. Charles at first refused, then accepted, but the carriage was upset, and eventually he continued his journey on horseback. Varied and unpleasant were the adventures he met with riding through the rough country roads, but he finally arrived at Vercelli, and hastened to the sick-room. When the illustrious patient saw his beloved father, beside his bed, he cried, I am cured! It was quite true. The mere presence of the saint effected that which the physicians, with all their science, had failed to accomplish. They had abandoned hope, declaring the prince could not recover. Behold, in an instant he regained perfect health. Recupero in un trato la sanita. Giovanni Botero, an eyewitness, deposed to this miraculous recovery at the process of the canonization. Charles Emmanuel himself was so certain that he owed his wonderful cure to the cardinal that a few years after the saint's death, to show his gratitude and veneration, he sent an attested certificate to Milan with the magnificent silver chandelier and a thousand pistoles to be spent in keeping eleven candles continually burning in front of Charles' tomb. We shall ever proclaim, he writes, that it was through the intercession of the illustrious Cardinal Borromeo we were restored to health. Charles gave holy communion to the prince. As he did so, he addressed him in a most touching manner, calling on him to return thanks to God and recited with great fervor the psalm of the penitent king. The Lord hath reigned, he is clothed with beauty, the Lord is clothed with strength, and has girded himself. Thy testimonies are made exceedingly credible. Holiness becometh thine house, O Lord, unto length of days. In accordance with the cardinal's wish, public devotions were held in the city, and the people gave fervent thanks to God for the miraculous restoration to health of their beloved prince, and greeted the cardinal with joyous acclamations, crying, it is he, the faithful servant of the Lord, who has worked the miracle. In the evening Charles set out on his homeward journey. He arrived at Milan in time to officiate pontifically on the Feast of the Nativity of the Blessed Virgin. In a moving discourse he related the object and the happy result of his journey. The archbishop invariably preached at the Mass he celebrated, standing in front of the altar instead of mounting the pulpit. His reasons for doing so, he explains with his usual clearness and simplicity, in a letter to his former vicar, Monsignor Ormanetto. I cannot make up my mind, he writes, to follow your advice and preach from the pulpit. 
In fact, the more I think it over, the less I like it. To preach from the pulpit requires not only a powerful voice and much declamatory eloquence. One must prepare the discourse with great care. I have not either the means or the time to do so. Speaking from before the altar, all one says appears good and to the point, and I need only prepare my homily on the previous evening. I find this way best, because I have resolved, according to the rules of our liturgy, to preach at all the pontifical masses. In ordaining that the bishop, robed in magnificent vestments, should preach after the first gospel, the idea of the church evidently was to inspire awe and reverence in the congregation. It gives an added majesty and authority to my words to speak in this manner, surrounded by my priests, also robed in sacred vestments. Charles had the gift of touching even the hardest hearts, although he had not an eloquent or flowing style, and generally spoke in the simplest way, using only ordinary words, and never indulging in flowers of rhetoric. An intimate friend of his, Father Gallerati, S.J., describes his style as follows. I frequently reflected that Cardinal Borromeo was not by nature endowed with eloquence. On the contrary, he spoke quietly and slowly, and used few words. Nevertheless, with these few words, and these often spoken so low that they were scarcely audible, I have known him not merely touch, but absolutely change the hearts of those he addressed, persuading them to do what he wished even in most important matters. In the autumn of 1583, Charles required all his powers of persuasion to effect any good in the colossal task that lay before him. The Pope had appointed him, as we know, apostolic visitor of all Switzerland, and it was in October 1583 that he crossed the Alps in order to commence this arduous undertaking. Parts of Switzerland were not only heretical, they were far worse, for the inhabitants of some of the valleys were sunk in a state of moral degradation too horrible to describe. Suffice it to say that magic and sorcery were practiced in an unthinkable, unspeakable manner. Not only were the people given over to these devilish practices, but at Roverado, in the Messalcine Valley, the parish priest was actually the leader of the hellish crew. All Charles' prayers and exhortations failed to touch the heart of this miserable wretch. He continued obstinate and unrepentant, and even the tears and supplications of a saint were unavailing. He would not abandon his infamous practices. Charles was reluctantly compelled to degrade him from his sacred office and to hand him over to the secular authority. He was punished for his unspeakable crimes by the flaming death that in those days was the penalty for sorcery. Charles wrote to the bishop of Carrere as follows, Neque desunt qui efferment, horus et religiosus aribus, eum sacrificantis veste indutum et manu tenetum sacrum chrisma impurissime, Saltese, Sacis operabatur, quotidie efferens ad arum impudicas ex nocturnis domestic, scurti complexibus manus, grifanus calices in usum sacrorum instituit. There were also a hundred and fifty women who practiced the black art, and by the grace of God Charles succeeded in converting a hundred and thirty-nine of these poor creatures. They acknowledged their abominable crimes and begged forgiveness. Eleven remained obdurate, and these were seized by the civil authority and condemned to be burnt alive. In vain the saintly archbishop prayed and wept over them, imploring them to repent before it was too late. They refused to listen to him, and he was obliged to return to Bellazona, and leave them to their awful doom. He commissioned Father Stepani and two other priests to remain with them until the end, hoping against hope that at the last terrible moment they would repent, and although their bodies would be burned, yet their souls would be saved. 
His prayers were heard, for before the fatal moment arrived they repented, confessed their sins, and received absolution and holy communion. Four of the poor creatures were burned on the 1st of December, four more on the 5th, and the remaining three on the 13th. Father Stepani and two other priests on each occasion gave them the last absolution. As the devouring flames enveloped them, they cried aloud in agony, Jesus, Jesus, misericordia, Jesus, Jesus. Father Stepani wrote to Charles that he had every hope that these unfortunate creatures had won salvation. The following extract from a letter from Father Charles to the Cardinal gives a vivid description of the dreadful scene. There was a pile of faggots collected in a square, and the women were placed upon a platform bound with cords, their faces turned towards the wood. The heat and roar of the flames were so terrific that flesh and bones alike were reduced to ashes. They confessed their crimes, and I gave them the final absolution, while Father Stapani and two priests encouraged and comforted them. I am quite unable to describe their sorrow and repentance. They underwent very terrible punishment with resignation. Before they were brought to the place of execution, they confessed their sins and received holy communion. They acknowledged their deserved death, and with signs of sincere repentance, consecrated themselves to Christ. They wore rosaries round their necks. The crowd was great, and all assembled in that vast space, cried aloud the holy name, and the unfortunate women echoed their cries, calling, Jesus, Jesus, from the midst of the flames. To us in our enlightened twentieth century, this terrible doom, the flaming death, seems a desperate remedy for witchcraft, but in the sixteenth century it was generally regarded as a fitting penalty. Only by these appalling means could the land be clear from sorcery, only thus could the people be free from the witch's dreaded influence. Kind-hearted, noble, and generous men and women, while they wept over the terrible fate of these miscreants, acknowledged that it was the only way. End of chapter 31